It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The biggest breaking news stories. An outspoken opinion. The Breakfast Briefing with Julia Hartley Brewer on Talk Radio. Good morning to you. Thank you very much indeed for your company. Uh, goodness me, it's such a lot to talk about after, as uh, I think we were all waiting for uh, that uh, horrific death toll uh, milestone being passed, 100,000 deaths. I mean, I have to say, I think a lot of the coverage uh, we have seen of that was... Oh, I mean, in some ways, in some some television stations, almost rubbing their hands with glee uh, at it. I mean, I genuinely found it really quite disturbing, some of the, the footage. Um, absolutely terrible death toll. Every single one of those deaths at an absolute tragedy, as is every death from every cause. I think we must point out that we are looking at a, a 100,000 deaths uh, related to COVID in the last year, but we'll also have, you know, more than half a million other deaths that have happened as well. And I think we do need to place it in context. That doesn't mean those deaths should be minimised, doesn't mean that most of those deaths uh, are not in excess and not actually deaths that perhaps could have been prevented. We don't know. Will we ever know? Well, there's going to be a public inquiry in the future, no doubt. But it does seem to me that the the blame game has very much started. What did the government do wrong? How many lives could have been saved? And uh, pointing the finger to... At, uh, at some countries which have had very low death tolls. The question is, of course, whether those low death tolls are a result of policy or, frankly, good luck and circumstance. Well, we shall discuss all of that with experts throughout the show and many politicians as well. Note, not always the same thing. Delighted to say that joining me all this morning for the conversation is Emma Revel, who's Head of Public Affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Good morning to you, Emma. Good morning. I mean, difficult to keep a, a cheery outlook throughout all of this, whatever one's perspective on uh, lockdown policy, I think. But a particularly grim day today, uh, or grim day yesterday, um, it's front page of all of the newspapers, the, the Prime Minister bending his head, uh, saying he's sorry about, uh, saying it's hard to commute, compute, he said, the sorrow caused by the appalling and tragic loss of life. And, and I don't know how anybody could not agree with that. Absolutely. It's it's very difficult to comprehend how we've reached this number. You know, back in, in February and March last year, experts were telling us if we had 20,000 deaths, we'd have that would have been a good result because of the impact that they, they likely thought we were going to have. We're over five times that now and, and we've doubled it since November. I think it's the speed at which we've reached this milestone that is quite particularly upsetting. Yeah, and, and again, uh, particularly this uh, you know, so-called second wave, and again, whether it's whether you call it a second wave or whether it's, I suppose that's just being pedantic there, and it's just semantics, but um, a, a, an endemic seasonal virus, as Sir Patrick Vallance said, that this virus would become um, once it's uh, once it's in our country, which it has been, we think now, goodness 
me for well over well over a year long before anyone was even talking about lockdowns or even knew about the uh, China had even admitted that the virus was uh, was at large in Wuhan. Um, that yeah, that this is this is what happens now. There's a lot of concern. You see graphs showing this horrific death toll over this winter. Um, and the and the, the big fear right now is that this is now worse than it was back last April. That is not the case. A lot of those graphs are very misleading. Uh, they show higher deaths in the first wave, but is the excess deaths that's crucial. Back in the first wave, we had more than double the number of normal deaths for that time of year. Currently, we have less than half of more, I feel it's 46% exactly more than the deaths we would not expect. So we have excess deaths. 100% no doubt about that. But they are not at the same extent on a daily basis as we saw uh, during the April, because of course April will be when you expect a very low death toll. And in the winter, very sadly, we do see a higher death toll every year. Um, so it's it's all about the relativity there as well. Um, a lot of people are very concerned that it's, you know, it's younger people who are dying, um, that, that it's under 60s. And like, again, not the case. Um, younger people, I mean, there, are, there are not more younger people dying of COVID now than there were back in April, whether or either being treated in ICU or sadly dying. 83 is still the average age of deaths. Only 7% of deaths are people under the age of 60. And the vast majority of those do have underlying conditions uh, and, uh, and a huge number, a huge number, half of those in critical care, 48 percent precisely, according to the latest official figures, uh, have a BMI over 30. Not to say those lives don't matter, Emma, at all. Of course, they like, we've all got elderly relatives. We have relatives who are overweight, maybe overweight ourselves. Uh, but there are a lot of factors to consider here. Um, and I suppose where I come in on this is that these deaths are all very sad. I wish none of these deaths had happened, I and mean, we all do. But the question is, is whether the government's policies that they've been pursuing for the best part of the last year are policies that will have cut that death toll or perhaps may even have contributed to the death toll or have had no effect whatsoever. What do you think? Um, I mean, it's very difficult to tell at this point because I think although it feels like we've been living with this for a long time, actually we're not going to be able to to truly make an assessment about what worked, what worked in some countries and didn't work in others, what was a universal, you know, uh, d a demonstrable thing that did reduce deaths until we're past it and we can look back and we can make international comparisons and also compare the UK's death toll year on year. It's very difficult to make that assessment now. Um, but I think many people are arguing that actually the speed with which we've gone from 50,000 deaths to 100,000 deaths it is probably due to some policy failing over the winter. Yes, it's winter. Yes, that seasonal conditions do exacerbate this kind of virus. But we knew that in March and we had nine months to get ready. And I, I don't think we did that sufficiently. Yeah. I mean, I think an awful lot of this is going to come down to actually not the nine months we've had to get ready to this point or 10 months uh, um, it is actually the ab abject failure. If there's going to be pointing of fingers, there's going to be a blame game. It's the abject failure of those whose job it was, who were paid, many of them, good six-figure salaries to prepare us for a pandemic. Everybody in, in the, who's an expert in this field has said, we are going to have a pandemic at some point and possibly very soon. We've seen SARS, we've seen MERS. We escaped very lightly from those. But um, they were contained pretty much in, in Southeast Asia and in the, then in the Middle East. It, it, everybody who knows anything about these things had been saying we need to prepare. Public Health England had one of their specific reasons of existence was to prepare for a pandemic. They didn't. They were busy burning some spare PPE back in January last year instead of uh, preparing for it. Um, we also know some of the countries that did best. I mean, uh, countries like uh, Taiwan and South Korea. Well, one of the reasons they did so well wasn't because they locked down, because, by the way, everyone, 
they didn't lock down, what they did do was have a test and trace system up and running, ready that they'd used it for SARS. Um, and they had it ready to go. They literally just pressed the button. It was ready to go. Um, the technology was there. They were preparing. Again, this is the sort of thing that Public Health England could have been trialling. We, we could have, even if we started later, we could have got this up and running. Even the entire point, surely, of that three weeks to uh, suppress the curve to protect the NHS back last March. That was supposed to get test and trace all up and running and working. It's never really functioned in any meaningful way. Um, I mean, I would have thought that, that those two things, test and tra- failure of test and trace and the failure to prepare, um, those two things alone would account for huge numbers of the, the extra death toll we, we, we may or may not have suffered as a result of government policy, as opposed to just what the virus would have done. Yes, a lot of the, uh, when we, you know, when the inquiry happens, when we look back on on where Britain failed when it came to tackling the coronavirus our institutions will bear a huge brunt of responsibility because as you say public health england has categorically failed yeah. to prepare and this should be one of its primary concerns but instead it was focusing on you know were we eating too many kit kats um yes. and, no, and no, we were, still... were we looking at adverts of kit kats even oh well, that's true we're not even allowed to eat them but god forbid we see one um but also you know the the nhs does need to come under some serious review once this is over because the the uh, way that the the nhs is set up meant it wasn't uh, sufficiently fast when it came to adapting to rapidly changing conditions like a pandemic that can have this effect on the health service whereas other health services were faster and were able to protect uh, protect their citizens better rather well, than us protecting us, the yes, nhs yes again I, genuinely every time i hear the phrase protect the nhs i'm thinking you know i absolutely happy to do that those first three weeks that that that, that was what that that lockdown was for that was why i supported that lockdown but absolutely at that point no no you know you had all you had all the extra money pumped in you had the nightingale hospitals you had uh, all those wonderful tens of thousands of, of re- often very recently retired or left staff who, who wanted to return and, and, and then still couldn't couldn't hack it and, and lack of faith, absolute abject failure to prepare properly uh, for the winter despite the NHS constantly saying we're going to have a winter crisis. Well, I mean, but that's not just on the NHS. That is on a lack of funding. We, we have to accept we have, I mean, by a long, long way, fewer doctors, fewer nurses and fewer beds per head of the population in this country than equivalent nation states like France and Germany. Now, we we pay a lot less income tax as a general population uh, to to pay for those services. But, you know, that's a conversation not just that the government has to have with us, uh, every government, every who, but also a conversation I think that we need to have with each other, with ourselves to say, if you know what, if you want a German or a French style healthcare service, not just in dealing with COVID, but also dealing with things like, you know, cancer, you know what, it's, you're not just going to be having to tax, you know, the billionaires. Everybody's going to have to pay a lot more tax. Uh, And and a lot of people, when they vote for more tax, they're usually voting for other people to pay more tax as opposed to uh, their own uh, tax increase. But we have seen a long term lower proportion of our GDP for you know spent on our healthcare. Maybe that's something we need to rectify. And all, as well, it's not just about the amount of money that's spent, but it's about the way that we spend it and the way that we fund our health service, a very centralised system where everything is done 
on a nationwide, you know, all in one platform is not the way that many European countries run their health system. They have social insurance models where people are allowed to a lot more flexibility, a lot more freedom on what they want their personalised healthcare to look like. And that means that the systems, their health services develop in a way that meets individual needs, as opposed to the way our health system works, which is very much one size fits all. This is the way we're going to do things. And it means that they were able to adapt and we weren't. Yeah, and again, in the regional basis, in Germany as well. Um, There are lots of other things. Again, when people point the finger, uh, again, I've been quite a critic of this government in the last six months. Certainly in the first few months, I thought actually a lot of the criticism was very uh, unreasonable and unfair uh, against the government uh, dealing with a brand new pandemic. And again, a lot of the criticisms we had, like PPE and things, were the same criticisms that everyone was making around the the world of their government. So it was an international problem, not just a national problem. Doesn't mean we shouldn't hold people to account, mind. But there is increasing evidence from around the world that actually an awful lot of the death toll in a country is totally outside of any policy. Whether it's someone like me who opposes lockdown policies, wants voluntary um, advice to, on people and some minimal restrictions on, say, mass gatherings. But but actually, um, I want people to be helped to look after their own risks and their families and their loved ones and other people's risks, as opposed to people being forcibly locked down, businesses closed, schools closed and the like. Um, and, and whether or not any of those policies make any difference in any direction or whether actually a lot of this is just outside of control. So obesity levels, you know, we're one of the highest obesity levels in, in Europe. Uh, population density, we, our population density is off the scale compared to most of the European countries. Um, the fact that we have a large hub airport or two large hub airports in Heathrow and Gatwick, Again, countries with big hub airports, far more likely to have seen the spread of the virus much sooner. Um, uh, the fact that we had, and again, one of the things we mostly say to control, um, a mild winter, the winter of 2019-2020. All of the countries in Europe that had very, very mild winters, very, very low deaths uh, that winter, have seen much higher death tolls as a result of uh, of COVID. It, it may well be, when all is said and done, when you look through everything, that the, the, the biggest correlations in terms of action and reaction and COVID deaths will actually be nothing to do with anything the government did in the last year. And this is why I say it it is too early to make any sort of definitive answer as to what worked and what didn't. We can only look at, you know, other countries while we're in the midst of it. And and we can't make those assessments now. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't start. The Breakfast Briefing with Julia Hartley Brewer on Talk Radio. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.